Chapter 6, 5 to 8. A workers, and I, I, I have changed the title to this message like four times. So I have landed with a worker's biblical responsibility to his superiors. And we'll get through verses 5 to 8. Now the last time we looked at the reality of slavery in the in the first century, and we saw that it wasn't a one-to-one parallel with the grossly dehumanizing and undignifying experience that is so often associated with American chattel slavery of the 18th and 19th centuries. The slavery that Paul addresses, that Paul speaks to, had absolutely nothing to do with race, And it was typically much more moderate, much more temperate and humane. It was much more dignifying, and and it was advantageous and personally benefiting for most slaves. (coughs) And my goal, which I, I hope and I trust that I accomplished it, my goal last time was to try to disarm any cultural... Uh, attempt that may be in our minds, that may be in the recesses of, of our minds. I know that we hear it. Uh, we hear it on TV. We hear it in social media. We hear it in most modern textbooks. Uh, I wanted to dis- disarm any cultural attempt to discredit Paul as though he didn't know what he was talking about and he wasn't qualified to speak towards He wasn't qualified to speak to slaves or about slavery because he doesn't sound the way uh, modern thought would prefer him to sound. I don't want want Paul nor scripture being discredited or de-elevated in our minds by even the smallest measure. Now Paul was speaking to those in a social setting that I think many of us can identify with and relate to. He's speaking to those who were entrusted with responsibility and as those who are placed under the authority of another human being where they were, where they would then be required to do what that other human being tells them to do because that other human being has been given the right to tell them what to do. <coughs> those of us who work for another person, and as who have to answer to supervisors, to man, to managers, to bosses, and company presidents, this is something that we understand. This is something we relate to, and what Paul says here is immediately applicable to us. Now, before I get into the text, uh, into the details of the text, there are some big idea principles that are really carrying, uh, Paul has been carrying along uh, in this whole discussion over what has been called the household code. Uh, He first addressed um, husbands and wives, and then parents and children, and now the last relationship within the home, uh, within within the, the smallest structure of society, is between the master and slave. And this first big idea principle, which is 
This isn't new to, to, to our verse. It's been carried along the whole way. The first big idea principle is this, is to be obedient to your appointed authorities. Be obedient to your appointed authorities. Paul says, <coughs> Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Now, a, a considerable percentage of the slaves to whom Paul writes probably did not have the advantage of having a Christian master. Some did, but many didn't, and we, we don't know the percentages. It's not really important. But church history does tell us that for centuries, the great majority of those who converted to the Christian faith were those among the poor and the lower class. And while there were, on occasion, Christian masters like Philemon and Christians in the ranks of the well-to-do and the social elite, they were the exception, the norm for Christians throughout history was not to be in positions of power, nor wield economical or political influence, but rather to be in a position of submission and to be subjected to others because they were servants or slaves. That was the norm for the Christian experience. And this is a sentiment which scripture affirms. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things are. Why? Paul says, so that no man may boast before God. And so, what Paul says here, what he says to slaves, <coughs> he says in the same spirit that Peter speaks to wives in 1 Peter 3, 1 where he says they are to be submissive to their own husbands, even though some of them are disobedient to the word, only here it's not disobedient, unbelieving husbands, it's disobedient, unbelieving masters. Granted, some slaves have many fair masters, but sinners are going to sin, and likely some of these masters... Some of these slaves, rather, have masters that they wished that they did not have. And I have no doubt that among the, the Christian slaves, among Paul's audience, uh, who he's writing to, there had developed a tendency to look, uh, for these slaves to look at their masters, uh, to, to look at the masters of their fellow slaves, and upon noticing, you know, making comparisons. And in noticing uh, which masters were more lenient, uh, which masters were more tolerating and more gracious, which masters were less strict, less overbearing, these Christian slaves did what is only natural. These Christian slaves 
do did what we would probably do, what we would almost certainly do if we were in their situation, and that is to covet after that which wasn't given to them by the Lord's sovereign appointment. They would have said things in their hearts, and maybe we have surely have said things like these in our own hearts. Why couldn't I have a boss like that, or a master like that? Why couldn't my master be like so-and-so's master? Why couldn't I have a setup that, that, that Joe has? Why, didn't I, why couldn't I get compensated as much as Daniel's getting compensated? Why couldn't I have the benefits that Ben has? Why couldn't I have the scheduling privileges that Dan has? And so on and down the line and down the line. And we do this, don't we? Am I, the only, am I the only one? Am I the only one that's, who's looked at other people's situations and wished, man, I, I wish I had what that person had? For those of you who don't know, I have over 10 years of experience working in uh, school districts, ten, um, eight years in California and two years here. And in both job situations, both employments, I frequented, <coughs> frequented other classrooms and it was it wasn't an uncommon thing to see how uh, how another teacher was running their classroom uh, to see the, the the dynamics between between other teachers and their paraeducators and for me to make comparisons and contrasts with the relationship that I had with my own teacher and my fellow staff and there were times I admit I, I coveted what other people had I wish I could have had that instead of what had been given to me. What Paul is saying here is something he has been saying all along to wives and children, only now he's addressing slaves and workers. And it is this. God has sovereignly put you where you are. God has sovereignly put you where you are. And your godliness begins with you submitting yourself under the authority that God has appointed over you. The Christian does not have the right to justify his or her disrespect and disobedience to his appointed authority because of some subjective uh, perception that the authority doesn't measure up in his eyes or that your authority is flawed or that it is somehow disappointing to you or because your supervisor, your boss, your manager, your superior isn't like the next guy's superior. To, to wives, Paul has said that you have the husbands you have because God has joined you in marriage to him and it's not by coincidence or mere happenstance but by the hand of God and because God's hand has given you that man or that uh, as a wife, because God has given you that man's hand, you as a wife are to submit to him as to the Lord. Remember that key phrase, as to the Lord. And to children, Paul has said, you don't have the parents you have by accident. I know sometimes it feels that way, kids. You don't have the parents you have by accident. It's not a mistake that you have the mom that you have or the dad that you have. 
come what may, they are the parents meant for you. And because they are meant for you and given to you, submit to their authority and obey them as unto the Lord. Only now Paul is speaking to slaves and servants, but the sentiment's the same. The sentiment, the big idea, principle is the, the same. Slaves, or to, or to put in our vernacular, employees, laborers, servants, and workers, obey those whom the Lord has put in a position of authority over your life or over your present circumstances. Maybe you had control over the circumstances that brought you to this point. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you made the calculated decision to, sub to subject yourself to a predetermined number of years so that you might come out better on the other side of your contract. Maybe you were a captive of war. Maybe you were born into this. Maybe you don't know if or when you will be free again. Nevertheless, the arrangement of you as a worker... Being subjected to a master according to the flesh is something that is made by the sovereign hand of God. That is, that is an arrangement that is made by the sovereign hand of God. And it is not the worker or the employee's or the slave's place to be complaining about how bad they have it. That's, that, that, this is the big idea principle. It is not our place to be malcontent and complaining with the circumstances that have been given to us by the hand of God. Nor should we lust after the setup that other people have. Nor should we be wishing for circumstances not given to us. Slaves, employees, servants of any and every capacity, Paul says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. That's the first big idea principle. The second one is to see Christ in your workplace. See Christ in your workplace. Again and again, in our verses this morning, Paul is repeating another big picture concept that he's already said to wives and he has said to children. And that is this. Your obedience in your earthly sphere transcends over the man or the woman you call boss. Just as, just as uh, a wife's obedience in the earthly sphere of her marriage transcends over her husband, and a child's uh, obedience in the earthly sphere of parents, the parent-child relationship transcends over the mom and the dad, the slave's obedience in his earthly sphere transcends over the man or the woman who happens to be his superior. And it is ultimately rendered unto the Lord himself. Paul is calling for Christian slaves and servants and employees to see Christ in their workplace and to see the Lord in the midst of their labor. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, slaves, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh. Now look at the end of the verse, as to Christ. Verse 6, 
not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. <coughs> Verse 7, with good will, good will, render service to the Lord. You see how Christ is permeating and he is, and is <coughs> attached to each of these features or aspects of the slave's obedience to his earthly masters. Christ is tethered to each one. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good thing he does, this he will receive from, from who? From HR? From the president's desk? I know, from, from the labor union. No, where, where does the slave, where does the, the worker ultimately receive his recompense? It is from the Lord whether slave or free. Verse 5, Christ. Verse 6, Christ. Verse 7, the Lord. Verse 8, the Lord. <coughs> Paul is calling Christian laborers and slaves to have a very Christ-centered perspective, a very Christ-conscientious perspective that they are to bring into the workplace. And this means that the Christian doesn't segregate his thoughts and confine his musings about what does or doesn't please the Lord and what isn't or is acceptable to the Lord merely to Sunday morning. Rather, we bring good, solid Christian doctrine into the workplace with the understanding that even the secular job site, even the secular workplace has been made a place of sacred service to God. And it is for this reason alone. It is by virtue of the fact that a Christian has been appointed to work there. Don't miss that. Your secular job site, by virtue of you being a Christian, and you, by virtue of you working there, that secular perhaps even pagan place has been made a sacred place where sacred service is rendered to the Lord. I, I hope you see how that adds a, a, a profound layer of dignity and significance to your work. That office, that cubicle, that spot on the factory assembly line, that or that place in front of the espresso machine, amen? <laughs> that, for many of us, that home, that, that, that cluttered desk, that cluttered home workspace where, where you fill out all of your Etsy orders <laughs> is a place ordained by Christ, sanctified by Christ, directed and supervised by Christ, and that place, whatever it is, the office, the cubicle, uh, your car, if you're an Uber driver, that, is a, that has been made a means appointed by Christ himself, whereby he will glorify himself through the work he appoints you to do. No matter your circumstance, or the desirability of your boss, or the relative earthly glory 
gloriousness or lack thereof, your, your circumstances. See that your job, see that the work that you do, and see that the attitude that you bring matters. See Christ in your workplace. I, how I wish someone had told me that in my 20s. I had an absolutely deplorable and shameful work ethic in my 20s. And I wish someone had told me this because it is so profoundly, life-changingly significant. And this means that the Christian who has, from the world's perspective, the most unsatisfying, the most boring, the most unrewarding work, and perhaps even the most unfair and unjust supervisor, has in reality a glorious opportunity and a wonderful privilege. The Christian can move beyond the drudgery and the dissatisfaction of the temporal circumstances. The unbeliever can't do that. The, the unbeliever has nothing to look for beyond his temporal circumstances. Anything is, is mere speculation. The Christian can, can move beyond his temporal circumstances and he can say with conviction, this is what the Lord himself has for me to do. And he's not guessing. He's not speculating. He knows. <clears throat> there is joy and meaning and purpose in even the most simplest of tasks by the virtue of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is here. And to do this seemingly unimportant work, it is really to do it for him and unto him. And what this means, as John Stott puts it, is that the one who is preparing a meal really has the opportunity to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus were to be the honored guest. He says it is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. That has the potential to make even the most mundane and drudge-filled job significant and purposeful. See Christ in your workplace. So, as I said, those were two. Those were some big, big idea principles that were really prevalent throughout the entire household code, marriage, parents, and here occupation. And I think Paul certainly upped the ante, making the workplace and the labor of the Christian a great, great privilege. The question is then raised, how ought the Christian slave or servant to obey his masters? I mean, we, we know it's, it's a given that the Christian should serve his, his, his superiors well, but how should he serve? What what should a Christian's service to his to his superiors look like? What should mark the Christian in the workplace? Well, Paul gives us four things. We we can call this workplace manners. 
The first workplace manner is respect. Respect. Verse 5. Paul says that slaves are to obey their masters according to their flesh, according to the flesh, <coughs> with fear and trembling. And what's, what's important to see is that this is not this is not a cringing fear of being hit or a or, or a fear that's that you know that, 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 that is afraid of being reprimanded the second you step out of line. It's rather it's rather a sincere and an earnest attitude that recognizes the authority of Jesus over and through that of the earthly master. Not only do we get this through the closing words, if you look at the end of verse 5, Paul makes it very clear. Where is the fear and trembling really pointed? It is pointed as to Christ. The earthly master gets in the way, and it goes through him, but it is the fear and the trembling, this this genuine respect is really pointed to Christ. And the parallel verse in Colossians tells us as much. Colossians 3.22 Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, here it is, fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. How you respect and view the authority of your earthly master, your, your, your superior according to the flesh. How you treat them, how you view them, how you respect them. It says a lot about how you view Christ. Whether or not you respect your boss, your supervisor, your manager, your company president. Says a lot about, how, about what you think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your godliness as an employee begins with how you respect your earthly superior. And as with husbands and fathers, this respect that we're to have for our superiors, it's not contingent on their relative level of worthiness of that respect. We owe it to them because of the position that God has put them in. And you know what this means. I, I, I know you don't want to hear this. But what it means is it doesn't matter if your, if your boss is smart or dumb. It doesn't matter if he is fair or she is fair or rude. It doesn't matter if they're generous or stingy. The Christian is to see that he respects his or her superior as a divinely appointed agent of the Lord's authority. As with children towards their parents, as with a wife towards her husband. The Christian respects, he obeys his earthly superior with respect. He also obeys with integrity. Integrity should mark the Christian in the workplace. Verse 5 Paul says, in the sincerity of your heart. And this word for sincerity means just that. It means sincere. It means uh, to be frank, to be, uh, to be genuine or, or straightforward. And it really, it speaks against, um, we can say, a heart of duplicity that puts on a front that says one thing, but internally it's feeling something else. We've all been there, haven't we? 
And what this would prohibit us from doing would be smiling at our bosses, putting on, putting on a good show of being a good sport, of having a good attitude, while, in, while internally brooding and criticizing and having a spirit of bitterness and antagonism. We've been there. We've done that, right? We can have on the surface a, a very tranquil appearance, but the waters can be very smooth, but underneath we're nurturing and harboring resentment and we're agitated and we're, we're grumbling and we're complaining. One of my favorite words in, in Greek is, uh, is the Greek word for complaining, gungasmu. And on the out, we, we can be, even as Christians, we can be very good at looking very respectful on the, in, on the outside, but in, internally we're gungasmuing. Don't be, don't be an internal gungasmuer. What Paul is saying is, as, as, as noble as it may feel to keep all of that repressed or, or suppressed and pushed deep down inside and to keep it from bubbling to the surface, our call as Christians is to honor our superiors, not only in action, but in attitude as well. Not merely externally, but internally, sincerely from the heart, and not as a two-faced person. You know, why? Two reasons. What is in the heart inevitably comes out of the mouth. You can suppress it, repress it, you can keep it down, but eventually what, whatever's in your heart, whatever you're thinking, inevitably will come out of your mouth. And secondly, we can think nobody sees what's in our hearts and we can fool a lot of people about what we're really thinking, what we're really feeling, but we can't fool the Lord. First Samuel 17, 16, 7 rather, says that the people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So have, have your heart right towards your boss. Have integrity and be sincere. <coughs> a third mark that should, or a third quality that should mark the, the Christian in the workplace is honesty. Honesty. Verse 6. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. The key word here, what do you think is the key word? I service. I service. Now, I, we have all worked with someone, maybe, maybe some of us in here have been this person, who have two standards for their work ethic. They have one way that we work when the boss is in the room, and then that we have uh, one way that, that, that we work when the boss is out of the room. And that's what this word for eye service means. Eye service says what the boss doesn't know doesn't hurt him. And as long as he's not watching me, I can do whatever I want. And the minute the boss walks back into the room, eye service gets back to work. As, as though eye service were working the whole time. And something that has uh, really enabled eye service in the workplace. Those of you who, who work on a computer, 
uh, will be familiar with this, is the Alt-Tab feature. Alt-Tab. You can be, you can be uh, 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 um, on social media, you can be streaming something. In, in, in walks the boss, quick Alt-Tab. And whatever you were watching is now minimized into a little window, and, and, and there you are, and you're typing on your Word document, and your Excel, and your PowerPoint, and your spreadsheets, and everything, and looks like you're hard at work. I found out, thanks to the NCAA, I don't, I don't know if this, I don't know if this is uh, uh, integrated into any of the other uh, sportsy stuff, but the NCAA website actually has built in to the live stream something called a boss button. Have, have you heard that smile tells me you've seen it? Okay, what Alt Tab is? The boss button is Alt-Tab on steroids. Now, you don't even have, because with Alt-Tab, you have to be coordinated, because you have to you know, get your hands down on the buttons and press them at the same time. All with the boss button, all you have to do is click, and the computer minimizes everything and brings up something that's supposed to, that it has the semblance of looking work-related. This is, this is eye service. We, we, we have a whole sports, uh, phenomena that is just built off of iService. This does not fly with the Christian. Let this not be so among the Lord's people. The Christian is not only not duplicitous in his heart, but he's not duplicitous in his work ethic. And the one who employs a Christian should trust that who he is when he's being supervised is one and the same of who he is when he is uh, not being supervised. If the Christian is being paid an hour's worth of pay, how many minutes should he be putting in to work? Hours worth of pay, how many minutes? 120. Okay, okay either beaver. I'm a slave owner. 200 person. 60 minutes. 60 minutes. The Christian employee obeys his boss with honesty. The last mark, and I'm sure that there are tons of marks that, that Paul could have said, but the last one he lists for us is goodwill. Goodwill. Verse 7. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men. And what goodwill here is, it's the idea of being positive. It's the idea of being uh, glad and cheerful, even when circumstances wouldn't dictate a cheery attitude. And what, what, what this does in the Christian who employs goodwill in the workplace is, <coughs> is it, it brings out an earnestness. It brings out a drive and a focus that is born out of a godly, constructive, positive attitude that is completely independent on, on matters like what side of bed you got up uh, in the morning or how you feel today. There are so many people, myself included if I'm being honest, there are so many people today who allow how they feel that day to completely determine and influence how the rest of the day is going to go. Christian shouldn't be like that. Christian should employ goodwill 
and bring an attitude that says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. Goodwill is, is, it says, today I have been given everything I need to do what is right and pleasing to the Lord. And he is with me and he has promised never to leave me nor forsake me. And no matter what happens or what trials may appear, these are things that don't catch him by surprise. No, they are merely stepping stones for me, being changed and challenged and sanctified and shaped precisely as he intends me to be. And I will be supplied every grace I need to overcome and endure them. Goodwill says these things. Goodwill takes to heart passages like Romans 8.28. Roman, uh, goodwill takes to heart passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And we know what these two passages say. God works together all things, the good circumstances as well as the undesirable circumstances, together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to its purpose. What does 1 Corinthians 10, 13 say? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that we are not tempted beyond what we are able to endure. And along with the temptation, God will provide the means of escape so that we can endure the temptation. Meaning, God doesn't just throw a stick in our path and watch to, so that he can watch us stumble over it. He doesn't tempt us like that. He provides us grace to endure it. And because of passages like those two, Goodwill says, I can apply 1 Corinthians 10.31 in that whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I can do all for the glory of God. Goodwill says these things. And goodwill should mark the Christian worker. Respect, integrity, honesty, and goodwill should mark the Christian worker and laborer. And maybe you've noticed that this is not all we're given in our text today. We've only gotten up to verse 7. <coughs> Paul, being ever helpful, gives us one more verse where he gives us the motivation we need to employ the workplace manners that he's called us to possess. So let's look at verse 8. The workplace motivation. The workplace motivation. And this is crucial. Because while I admit that the norm was for slaves in Paul's day to have mostly fair and temperate experiences, that doesn't mean that there haven't been in, in history Christian slaves who received unfair and unjust treatment from the hands of their masters. That did happen. It may not have been the norm, but it did happen sometimes, some places. And surely for us today, as those who sometimes sit under the prejudices and the biases of sinful superiors, and sometimes receive what we don't deserve at their hand, we need encouragement. We need encouragement and motivation to bear these things faithfully. And so I would ask you, what prompts the Christian to endure these things? What, what propels the Christian to endure a low-paying, unsatisfying job and to do it well anyway? To do it, to show up to work faithfully and punctually, I might add, day after day 
after thankless day? What compels a Christian to bear up with patience and to carry on with respect and integrity and honesty and goodwill when he works for a man or a woman who certainly doesn't deserve such qualities in their underlings. It is this. It is the unbending truth that the Lord has appointed a final day of judgment in which all the books will be opened. And when we as believers will not be judged for our sins, but rather rewarded for how we served and obeyed the Lord. And we who belong to him will be given our recompense and our reward for all the times we did our duty as unto the Lord. Look at verse 8. He says, knowing that, knowing that, which, which means that what he, what he, everything that he has said up until this point is now hinging on this. This is the motivation. This is the basis. This is the ground for faithfully doing everything that he said up to this point. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Christ knows all of his own by name, and not a single act of service that they do goes unrecorded and unnoticed. Pastor Don Green puts it this way, and I love this. Christ keeps his own books. Christ keeps his own books. And what he, and what he sees his people do, he makes a record so that he can personally reward them for it. And as has been said before, our legal and social standing in this world is not the final word. And so it doesn't matter if for the time being you're the one on top or you're the one on bottom for Christ. Scripture tells us that Christ is no respecter of persons. The question will not be, at, at, at the end of it all, in the final analysis, the question will not be, how much fairness were you shown? Were, were you given equity and justice? The question will be this, rather. Did you do the will of God with your life? Did you do the will of God with your life? Did you do what is right and pleasing to the Lord with the circumstances you were given? Yes or no? Did you do what is right and pleasing to the Lord with the circumstances you were given, how much better it will be for the lowly slave who was given nothing, but nonetheless sought to please Christ in even the most menial means possible. How much better it will be for them, for that one, than it will be for masters who had much by earthly standards, but nevertheless displeased Christ and opposed Christ and withstood Christ. You, you heard the scripture reading this morning. The man who had it all, God can bring such men to, to ruin. And he will do that for all such men in the last day. Let us as slaves of Christ be resolved to give ourselves to our duty with the right mindset 
and out of the right motivation commit the outcome to our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I, I recognize that uh, perhaps some in this room, perhaps some watching on live stream, um, have had at times feelings like they've been given a pretty rotten lot. I know what it's like to struggle with feeling my place in life, my office in life is insignificant and it's never going to amount to anything. <coughs> I know what the, the what the struggle can be to be under somebody who is unfair, uncompassionate, uncaring, and inconsiderate. And I pray that anyone here who is likewise uh, has something, anything even remotely similar to that on their plate, I pray that you would use this text to draw them to you and to see that whatever their earthly lot in this life is, is not the final say. And that in Christ, those who are poor are indeed made very rich. Those who have, by earthly standards, nothing can have absolutely everything. Please supply our needs and be gracious to us. We love you, Lord. Now we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, and as I've alluded to over the last couple of weeks, there's a passage in the Old Testament that really exemplifies the Lord Jesus Christ being a slave and serving not only God, but the people of God by committing himself to do the work that is appointed for him to do. So, I want to read Isaiah 53 to you. And as we approach the Lord's table, I, I want you to see in, in this work that he is doing, I mean, my, my Bible has captioned this, the suffering servant. So as we see Isaiah 53 describing our Lord's suffering, see that he is serving us by suffering for us, by taking our place, which is something that we, are, we ought to be particularly mindful as we come to the table. Verse, uh, I'll start at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Each of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. A slave doesn't have the right to protest. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors being mindful of this is something the Lord's people do every week but we are particularly mindful of the Lord interceding for us and bearing our sins in his body becoming the curse for us and hanging on the cross. That is why this, this ceremony, this Lord's Supper is, is reserved for Christians, for those whom the Lord has interceded for. If you are not a Christian or if, you're, if your heart is not in the right place right now, either against the Lord himself or against one of his people, I would strongly encourage you uh, to heed what scripture says let the elements pass don't take them in an unworthy manner so while the Ben's going to come up and distribute the elements use this time in prayer and silent reflection to just worship the Lord and to enjoy the sweet satisfaction of his sufficiency for your sake
the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, by the single offering of yourself, the breaking of your body, the shedding of your blood, you have forever sanctified and perfected a people for yourself and for your Father. Thank you for this incredible thing that you have done, which we could never do for ourselves. In your blood we have been forgiven our sins, we have been redeemed, and by the power of your Spirit we have been sealed so that we might never be lost. What a truly wonderful thing it is for us to come together on this day and to worship you, to love you, Lord. Amen.